英語聞き流し世界名作リスニング英語テキストと MP3 ダウンロード他の物語はホームページからご利用いただけます 88thpp.com 88thpp.com Chapter 24 Tom was a glittering hero once more, the pet of the old, the envy of the young. His name even went into immortal print, for the village paper magnified him. There were some that believed he would be president, yet, if he escaped hanging. As usual, the fickle, unreasoning world took Muff Potter to its bosom and fondled him as lavishly as it had abused him before. But that sort of conduct is to the world's credit, therefore it is not well to find fault with it. Tom's days were days of splendor and exultation to him, but his nights were seasons of horror. Injun Joe infested all his dreams, and always with doom in his eye. Hardly any temptation could persuade the boy to stir abroad after nightfall. Poor Huck was in the same state of wretchedness and terror, for Tom had told the whole story to the lawyer the night before the great day of the trial, and Huck was sore afraid that his share in the business might leak out, yet, notwithstanding Injun Joe's flight had saved him the suffering of testifying in court. The poor fellow had got the attorney to promise secrecy, but what of that? Since Tom's harassed conscience had managed to drive him to the lawyer's house by night and wring a dread tale from lips that had been sealed with the dismalest and most formidable of oaths, Huck's confidence in the human race was well nigh obliterated. Daily Muff Potter's gratitude made Tom glad he had spoken, but nightly he wished he had sealed up his tongue. Half the time Tom was afraid Injun Joe would never be captured, the other half he was afraid he would be. He felt sure he never could draw a safe breath again until that man was dead and he had seen the corpse. Rewards had been offered, the country had been scoured, but no Injun Joe was found. One of those omniscient and awe-inspiring marvels, a detective, came up from St. Louis, moused around, shook his head, looked wise, and made that sort of astounding success which members of that craft usually achieve. That is to say, he found a clue. But you can't hang a clue for murder and so after the detective had got through and gone home, Tom felt just as insecure as he was before. The slow days drifted on, and each left behind it a slightly lightened weight of apprehension. Chapter 25 There comes a time in every rightly constructed boy's life when he has a raging desire to go somewhere and dig for hidden treasure. This desire suddenly came upon Tom one day. He sallied out to find Joe Harper, but failed of success. Next he sought Ben Rogers, he had gone fishing. Presently he stumbled upon Huck Finn the red-handed. Huck would answer. Tom took him to a private place and opened the matter to him confidentially. Huck was willing. Huck was always willing to take a hand in any enterprise that offered entertainment and required no capital, for he had a troublesome superabundance of that sort of time which is not money. Where'll we dig? said Huck. Oh, most anywhere. Why, is it hid all around? No, indeed it ain't. It's hid in mighty particular places, Huck, sometimes on islands, sometimes in rotten chests under the end of a limb of an old dead tree, just where the shadow falls at midnight, but mostly under the floor in haunted houses. Who hides it? Why, robbers, of course, who'd you reckon? Sunday school superintendents? I don't know. If twas mine I wouldn't hide it, I'd spend it and have a good time. So would I but robbers don't do that way. They always hide it and leave it there. Don't they come after it anymore? No, they think they will, but they generally forget the marks, or else they die. Anyway, it lays there a long time and gets rusty, and by and by somebody finds an old yellow paper that tells how to find the marks, a paper that's got to be ciphered over about a week because it's mostly signs and hieroglyphics. Hiero, which? Hieroglyphics, pictures and things, you know, that don't seem to mean anything. Have you got one of them papers, Tom? No. 
Well then, how you going to find the marks? I don't want any marks. They always bury it under a haunted house or on an island, or under a dead tree that's got one limb sticking out. Well, we've tried Jackson's Island a little, and we can try it again sometime, and there's the old haunted house up the still house branch, and there's lots of dead limb trees, dead loads of them. Is it under all of them? How you talk? No. Then how you going to know which one to go for? Go for all of them. Why, Tom, it'll take all summer. Well, what of that? Suppose you find a brass pot with a hundred dollars in it, all rusty and gray, or rotten chest full of diamonds. How's that? Hawk's eyes glowed. That's bully. Plenty bully enough for me. Just you give me the hundred dollars and I don't want no diamonds. All right. But I bet you I ain't going to throw off on diamonds. Some of them's worth twenty dollars a piece, there ain't any, hardly, but's worth six bits or a dollar. No. Is that so? Certainly, anybody'll tell you so. Hain't you ever seen one, Huck? Not as I remember. Oh, kings have slathers of them. Well, I don't know no kings, Tom. I reckon you don't. But if you was to go to Europe you'd see a raft of them hopping around. Do they hop? Hop? Your granny. No. Well, what did you say they did, for? Shucks, I only meant you'd see em not hopping, of course, what do they want to hop for? But I mean you'd just see em, scattered around, you know, in a kind of a general way. Like that old humpback Richard. Richard? What's his other name? He didn't have any other name. Kings don't have any but a given name. No? But they don't. Well, if they like it, Tom, all right, but I don't want to be a king and have only just a given name, like a nigger. But say, were you going to dig first? Well, I don't know. Suppose we tackle that old dead limb tree on the hill t'other side of Stillhouse Branch. I'm agreed. So they got a crippled pick and a shovel, and set out on their three-mile tramp. They arrived hot and panting, and threw themselves down in the shade of a neighboring elm to rest and have a smoke. I like this, said Tom. So do I. Say, Huck, if we find a treasure here, what you going to do with your share? Well, I'll have pie and a glass of soda every day, and I'll go to every circus that comes along. I bet I'll have a gay time. Well, ain't you going to save any of it? Save it? What for? Why, so as to have something to live on, by and by. Oh, that ain't any use. Pap would come back to this year town some day and get his claws on it if I didn't hurry up, and I tell you he'd clean it out pretty quick. What you going to do with yourn, Tom? I'm going to buy a new drum, and a sure enough sword, and a red necktie and a bullpup, and get married. Married. That's it. Tom, you, why, you ain't in your right mind. Wait, you'll see. Well, that's the foolishest thing you could do. Look at Pap and my mother. Fight. Why, they used to fight all the time. I remember, mighty well. That ain't anything. The girl I'm going to marry won't fight. Tom, I reckon they're all alike. They'll all comb a body. Now you better think bout this a while. I tell you you better. What's the name of the gal? It ain't a gal at all, it's a girl. It's all the same, I reckon, some says gal, some says girl, both's right, like enough. Anyway, what's her name, Tom? I'll tell you some time, not now. All right, that'll do. Only if you get married I'll be more lonesomer than ever. No you won't. You'll come and live with me. Now stir out of this and we'll go to digging. They worked and sweated for half an hour. No result. They toiled another half hour. Still no result. Huck said. 
do they always bury it as deep as this? Sometimes, not always. Not generally. I reckon we haven't got the right place. So they chose a new spot and began again. The labor dragged a little, but still they made progress. They pegged away in silence for some time. Finally Huck leaned on his shovel, swabbed the beaded drops from his brow with his sleeve, and said. Where you going to dig next, after we get this one? I reckon maybe we'll tackle the old tree that's over yonder on Cardiff Hill back of the widow's. I reckon that'll be a good one. But won't the widow take it away from us, Tom? It's on her land. She take it away. Maybe she'd like to try it once. Whoever finds one of these hid treasures, it belongs to him. It don't make any difference whose land it's on. That was satisfactory. The work went on. By and by Huck said. Blame it, we must be in the wrong place again. What do you think? It is mighty curious, Huck. I don't understand it. Sometimes witches interfere. I reckon maybe that's what's the trouble now. Shucks. Witches ain't got no power in the daytime. Well, that's so. I didn't think of that. Oh, I know what the matter is. What a blamed lot of fools we are. You got to find out where the shadow of the limb falls at midnight, and that's where you dig. Then can sound it, we've fooled away all this work for nothing. Now hang it all, we got to come back in the night. It's an awful long way. Can you get out? I bet I will. We've got to do it tonight, too, because if somebody sees these holes they'll know in a minute what's here and they'll go for it. Well, I'll come around and mount tonight. All right. Let's hide the tools in the bushes. The boys were there that night, about the appointed time. They sat in the shadow waiting. It was a lonely place, and an hour made solemn by old traditions. Spirits whispered in the rustling leaves, ghosts lurked in the murky nooks, the deep baying of a hound floated up out of the distance, an owl answered with his sepulchral note. The boys were subdued by these solemnities, and talked little. By and by they judged the twelve had come, they marked where the shadow fell, and began to dig. Their hopes commenced to rise. Their interest grew stronger, and their industry kept pace with it. The hole deepened and still deepened, but every time their hearts jumped to hear the pick strike upon something, they only suffered a new disappointment. It was only a stone or a chunk. At last Tom said, It ain't any use, Huck, we're wrong again. Well, but we can't be wrong. We spotted the shatter to a dot. I know it, but then there's another thing. What's that? Why, we only guessed at the time. Like enough it was too late or too early. Huck dropped his shovel. That's it, said he. That's the very trouble. We got to give this one up. We can't ever tell the right time, and besides this kind of thing's too awful, here this time of night with witches and ghosts a fluttering around so. I feel as if something's behind me all the time, and I'm afeard to turn around, because maybe there's others in front a waiting for a chance. I've been creeping all over, ever since I got here. Well, I've been pretty much so, too, Huck. They most always put in a dead man when they bury a treasure under a tree, to look out for it. Lordy. Yes, they do. I've always heard that. Tom, I don't like to fool around much where there's dead people. A body's bound to get into trouble with them, sure. I don't like to stir em up, either. Suppose this one here was to stick his skull out and say something. Don't Tom. It's awful. Well, it just is. Huck, I don't feel comfortable a bit. Say, Tom, let's give this place up and try somewheres else. All right, I reckon we better. What'll it be? Tom considered a while, and then said. The haunted house. That's it. Blame it, I don't like haunted houses, Tom. Why, they're a dern sight worse than dead people. Dead people might talk, maybe, 
but they don't come sliding around in a shroud, when you ain't noticing, and peep over your shoulder all of a sudden and grit their teeth, the way a ghost does. I couldn't stand such a thing as that, Tom, nobody could. Yes, but, Huck, ghosts don't travel around only at night. They won't hinder us from digging there in the daytime. Well, that's so. But you know mighty well people don't go about that haunted house in the day nor the night. Well, that's mostly because they don't like to go where a man's been murdered, anyway, but nothing's ever been seen around that house except in the night, just some blue lights slipping by the windows, no regular ghosts. Well, where you see one of them blue lights flickering around, Tom, you can bet there's a ghost mighty close behind it. It stands to reason. Because you know that they don't anybody but ghosts use them. Yes, that's so. But anyway they don't come around in the daytime, so what's the use of our being afeard? Well, all right. We'll tackle the haunted house if you say so, but I reckon it's taking chances. They had started down the hill by this time. There in the middle of the moonlit valley below them stood the haunted house, utterly isolated, its fences gone long ago, rank weed smothering the very doorsteps, the chimney crumbled to ruin, the window sashes vacant, a corner of the roof caved in. The boys gazed a while, half expecting to see a blue light flit past a window, then talking in a low tone, as befitted the time and the circumstances, they struck far off to the right, to give the haunted house a wide berth, and took their way homeward through the woods that adorned the rearward side of Cardiff Hill. Chapter 26 About noon the next day the boys arrived at the dead tree, they had come for their tools. Tom was impatient to go to the haunted house, Huck was measurably so, also, but suddenly said. Look I hear, Tom, do you know what day it is? Tom mentally ran over the days of the week, and then quickly lifted his eyes with a startled look in them. My! I never once thought of it, Huck. Well, I didn't either, but all at once it popped onto me that it was Friday. Blame it, a body can't be too careful, Huck. We might a got into an awful scrape, tackling such a thing on a Friday. Might. Better say we would. There's some lucky days, maybe, but Friday ain't. Any fool knows that. I don't reckon you was the first that found it out, Huck. Well, I never said I was, did I? And Friday ain't all, neither. I had a rotten bad dream last night, dreamed about rats. No. Sure sign of trouble. Did they fight? No. Well, that's good, Huck. When they don't fight it's only a sign that there's trouble around, you know. All we got to do is to look mighty sharp and keep out of it. We'll drop this thing for today, and play. Do you know Robin Hood, Huck? No. Who's Robin Hood? Why, he was one of the greatest men that was ever in England, and the best. He was a robber. Cracky, I wished I was. Who did he rob? Only sheriffs and bishops and rich people and kings, and such like. But he never bothered the poor. He loved them. He always divided up with them perfectly square. Well, he must a been a brick. I bet you he was, Huck. Oh, he was the noblest man that ever was. They ain't any such men now, I can tell you. He could lick any man in England, with one hand tied behind him, and he could take his U-bow and plug a ten-cent piece every time, a mile and a half. What's a U-bow? I don't know. It's some kind of a bow, of course. And if he hit that dime only on the edge he would sit down and cry, and curse. But we'll play Robin Hood, it's nobby fun. I'll learn you. I'm agreed. So they played Robin Hood all the afternoon, now and then casting a yearning eye down upon the haunted house and passing a remark about the morrow's prospects and possibilities there. As the sun began to sink into the west they took their way homeward athwart the long shadows of the trees and soon were buried from sight in the forests of Cardiff Hill. On Saturday, shortly afternoon, 
the boys were at the dead tree again. They had a smoke and a chat in the shade, and then dug a little in their last hole, not with great hope, but merely because Tom said there were so many cases where people had given up a treasure after getting down within six inches of it, and then somebody else had come along and turned it up with a single thrust of a shovel. The thing failed this time, however, so the boys shouldered their tools and went away feeling that they had not trifled with fortune, but had fulfilled all the requirements that belong to the business of treasure hunting. When they reached the haunted house there was something so weird and grisly about the dead silence that reigned there under the baking sun, and something so depressing about the loneliness and desolation of the place, that they were afraid, for a moment, to venture in. Then they crept to the door and took a trembling peep. They saw a weed-grown, floorless room, unplastered, an ancient fireplace, vacant windows, a ruinous staircase, and here, there, and everywhere hung ragged and abandoned cobwebs. They presently entered, softly, with quickened pulses, talking in whispers, ears alert to catch the slightest sound, and muscles tense and ready for instant retreat. In a little while familiarity modified their fears and they gave the place a critical and interested examination, rather admiring their own boldness, and wondering at it, too. Next they wanted to look upstairs. This was something like cutting off retreat, but they got to daring each other, and of course there could be but one result, they threw their tools into a corner and made the ascent. Up there were the same signs of decay. In one corner they found a closet that promised mystery, but the promise was a fraud, there was nothing in it. Their courage was up now and well in hand. They were about to go down and begin work when. S.H., said Tom. What is it? whispered Huck, blanching with fright. S.H. There. Hear it? Yes. Oh my. Let's run. Keep still. Don't you budge. They're coming right toward the door. The boys stretched themselves upon the floor with their eyes to knotholes in the planking, and lay waiting, in a misery of fear. They've stopped. No, coming. Here they are. Don't whisper another word, Huck. My goodness, I wish I was out of this. Two men entered. Each boy said to himself, there's the old deaf and dumb Spaniard that's been about town once or twice lately, never saw t'other man before. T'other was a ragged, unkempt creature, with nothing very pleasant in his face. The Spaniard was wrapped in a serape, he had bushy white whiskers, long white hair flowed from under his sombrero, and he wore green goggles. When they came in, T'other was talking in a low voice, they sat down on the ground, facing the door, with their backs to the wall, and the speaker continued his remarks. His manner became less guarded and his words more distinct as he proceeded. No, said he, I've thought it all over, and I don't like it. It's dangerous. Dangerous. Grunted the deaf and dumb Spaniard, to the vast surprise of the boys. Milksop. This voice made the boys gasp and quake. It was Injun Joe's. There was silence for some time. Then Joe said. What's any more dangerous than that job up yonder, but nothing's come of it. That's different. Away up the river so, and not another house about. Toon ever be known that we tried, anyway, long as we didn't succeed. Well, what's more dangerous than coming here in the daytime? Anybody would suspicion us that saw us. I know that. But there weren't any other places handy after that fool of a job. I want to quit this shanty. I wanted to yesterday, only it weren't any use trying to stir out of here, with those infernal boys playing over there on the hill right in full view. Those infernal boys quaked again under the inspiration of this remark, and thought how lucky it was that they had remembered it was Friday and concluded to wait a day. They wished in their hearts they had waited a year. The two men got out some food and made a luncheon. After a long and thoughtful silence, Injun Joe said. Look here, lad, you go back up the river where you belong. Wait there till you hear from me. 
I'll take the chances on dropping into this town just once more, for a look. We'll do that dangerous job after I've spied around a little and think things look well for it. Then for Texas. We'll leg it together. This was satisfactory. Both men presently fell to yawning, and Injun Joe said. I'm dead for sleep. It's your turn to watch. He curled down in the weeds and soon began to snore. His comrades stirred him once or twice and he became quiet. Presently the watcher began to nod, his head drooped lower and lower, both men began to snore now. The boys drew a long, grateful breath. Tom whispered. Now's our chance, come. Huck said. I can't, I'd die if they was to wake. Tom urged, Huck held back. At last Tom rose slowly and softly, and started alone. But the first step he made rung such a hideous creak from the crazy floor that he sank down almost dead with fright. He never made a second attempt. The boys lay there counting the dragging moments till it seemed to them that time must be done and eternity growing grey, and then they were grateful to note that at last the sun was setting. Now one snore ceased. Injun Joe sat up, stared around, smiled grimly upon his comrade, whose head was drooping upon his knees, stirred him up with his foot and said. Here. You're a watchman, ain't you? All right, though, nothing's happened. My. Have I been asleep? Oh, partly, partly. Nearly time for us to be moving, part. What'll we do with what little swag we've got left? I don't know, leave it here as we've always done, I reckon. No use to take it away till we start south. 650 and silver's something to carry. Well, all right, it won't matter to come here once more. Nope, I'd say come in the night as we used to do, it's better. Yes, but look here, it may be a good while before I get the right chance at that job, accidents might happen, tamed in such a very good place, we'll just regularly bury it, and bury it deep. Good idea, said the comrade, who walked across the room, knelt down, raised one of the rearward hearthstones and took out a bag that jingled pleasantly. He subtracted from it twenty or thirty dollars for himself and as much for Injun Joe, and passed the bag to the latter, who was on his knees in the corner, now, digging with his bowie knife. The boys forgot all their fears, all their miseries in an instant. With gloating eyes they watched every movement. Look. The splendor of it was beyond all imagination. Six hundred dollars was money enough to make half a dozen boys rich. Here was treasure hunting under the happiest auspices, there would not be any bothersome uncertainty as to where to dig. They nudged each other every moment, eloquent nudges and easily understood, for they simply meant, oh, but ain't you glad now we're here. Joe's knife struck upon something. Hello said he. What is it? said his comrade. Half rotten plank, no, it's a box, I believe. Here, bear a hand and we'll see what it's here for. Never mind, I broke a hole. He reached his hand in and drew it out. Man, it's money. The two men examined the handful of coins. They were gold. The boys above were as excited as themselves, and as delighted. Joe's comrade said. We'll make quick work of this. There's an old rusty pick over amongst the weeds in the corner the other side of the fireplace, I saw it a minute ago. He ran and brought the boy's pick and shovel. Injun Joe took the pick, looked it over critically, shook his head, muttered something to himself, and then began to use it. The box was soon unearthed. It was not very large, it was iron-bound and had been very strong before the slow years had injured it. The men contemplated the treasure a while in blissful silence. Part, there's thousands of dollars here, said Injun Joe. "'Twas always said that Merle's gang used to be around here one summer,' the stranger observed. "'I know it,' said Injun Joe, "'and this looks like it, I should say. "'Now you won't need to do that job.' "'The half-breed frowned,' said he. 
You don't know me. Least you don't know all about that thing. Taint robbery altogether, it's revenge. And a wicked light flamed in his eyes. I'll need your help in it. When it's finished, then Texas. Go home to your Nance and your kids, and stand by till you hear from me. Well, if you say so, what'll we do with this, bury it again? Yes. Ravishing delight overhead, no. By the great Sachem, no. Profound distress overhead, I'd nearly forgot. That pick had fresh earth on it. The boys were sick with terror in a moment, what business has a pick and a shovel here? What business with fresh earth on them? Who brought them here, and where are they gone? Have you heard anybody? Seen anybody? What? Bury it again and leave them to come and see the ground disturbed? Not exactly, not exactly. We'll take it to my den. Why, of course. Might have thought of that before. You mean number one? No, number two, under the cross. The other place is bad, too common. All right. It's nearly dark enough to start. Injun Joe got up and went about from window to window cautiously peeping out. Presently he said. Who could have brought those tools here? Do you reckon they can be upstairs? The boy's breath forsook them. Injun Joe put his hand on his knife, halted a moment, undecided, and then turned toward the stairway. The boys thought of the closet, but their strength was gone. The steps came creaking up the stairs, the intolerable distress of the situation woke the stricken resolution of the lads, they were about to spring for the closet, when there was a crash of rotten timbers and Injun Joe landed on the ground amid the debris of the ruined stairway. He gathered himself up cursing, and his comrade said. Now what's the use of all that? If it's anybody, and they're up there, let them stay there, who cares? If they want to jump down, now, and get into trouble, who objects? It will be dark in fifteen minutes, and then let them follow us if they want to. I'm willing. In my opinion, whoever hove those things in here caught a sight of us and took us for ghosts or devils or something. I'll bet they're running yet. Joe grumbled a while, then he agreed with his friend that what daylight was left ought to be economized in getting things ready for leaving. Shortly afterward they slipped out of the house in the deepening twilight, and moved toward the river with their precious box. Tom and Huck rose up, weak but vastly relieved, and stared after them through the chinks between the logs of the house. Follow? Not they. They were content to reach ground again without broken necks, and take the townward track over the hill. They did not talk much. They were too much absorbed in hating themselves, hating the ill luck that made them take the spade and the pick there. But for that, Injun Joe never would have suspected. He would have hidden the silver with the gold to wait there till his revenge was satisfied, and then he would have had the misfortune to find that money turn up missing. Bitter, bitter luck that the tools were ever brought there. They resolved to keep a lookout for that Spaniard when he should come to town spying out for chances to do his revengeful job, and follow him to number two, wherever that might be. Then a ghastly thought occurred to Tom. Revenge? What if he means us, Huck? Oh, don't, said Huck, nearly fainting. They talked it all over, and as they entered town they agreed to believe that he might possibly mean somebody else, at least that he might at least mean nobody but Tom, since only Tom had testified. Very, very small comfort it was to Tom to be alone in danger. Company would be a palpable improvement, he thought. Chapter 27 The adventure of the day mightily tormented Tom's dreams that night. Four times he had his hands on that rich treasure and four times it wasted to nothingness in his fingers as sleep forsook him and wakefulness brought back the hard reality of his misfortune. As he lay in the early morning recalling the incidents of his great adventure, he noticed that they seemed curiously subdued and far away, somewhat as if they had happened in another world, or in a time long gone by. Then it occurred to him that the great adventure itself must be a dream. 
there was one very strong argument in favor of this idea, namely, that the quantity of coin he had seen was too vast to be real. He had never seen as much as $50 in one mass before, and he was like all boys of his age and station in life, in that he imagined that all references to hundreds and thousands were mere fanciful forms of speech, and that no such sums really existed in the world. He never had supposed for a moment that so large a sum as a hundred dollars was to be found in actual money in any one's possession. If his notions of hidden treasure had been analyzed, they would have been found to consist of a handful of real dimes and a bushel of vague, splendid, ungraspable dollars. But the incidents of his adventure grew sensibly sharper and clearer under the attrition of thinking them over, and so he presently found himself leaning to the impression that the thing might not have been a dream, after all. This uncertainty must be swept away. He would snatch a hurried breakfast and go and find Huck. Huck was sitting on the gunwale of a flatboat, listlessly dangling his feet in the water and looking very melancholy. Tom concluded to let Huck lead up to the subject. If he did not do it, then the adventure would be proved to have been only a dream. Hello, Huck. Hello, yourself. Silence, for a minute. Tom, if we'd a left the blame tools at the dead tree, we'd a got the money. Oh, ain't it awful. Taint a dream, then, taint a dream. Somehow I most wish it was. Dogged if I don't, Huck. What ain't a dream? Oh, that thing yesterday. I been half thinking it was. Dream. If them stairs hadn't broke down you'd a seen how much dream it was. I've had dreams enough all night, with that patch-eyed Spanish devil going for me all through him, rot him. No, not rot him. Find him. Track the money. Tom will never find him. A feller don't have only one chance for such a pile, and that one's lost. I'd feel mighty shaky if I was to see him, anyway. Well, so'd I, but I'd like to see him, anyway, and track him out, to his number two. Number two, yes, that's it. I've been thinking about that. But I can't make nothing out of it. What do you reckon it is? I don't know. It's too deep. Say, Huck, maybe it's the number of a house. Goody. No, Tom, that ain't it. If it is, it ain't in this one-horse town. They ain't no numbers here. Well, that's so. Let me think a minute. Here, it's the number of a room, and a tavern, you know. Oh, that's the trick. They ain't only two taverns. We can find out quick. You stay here, Huck, till I come. Tom was off at once. He did not care to have Huck's company in public places. He was gone half an hour. He found that in the best tavern number two had long been occupied by a young lawyer, and was still so occupied. In a less ostentatious house, number two was a mystery. The tavern keeper's young son said it was kept locked all the time, and he never saw anybody go into it or come out of it except at night, he did not know any particular reason for this state of things, had had some little curiosity, but it was rather feeble, had made the most of the mystery by entertaining himself with the idea that that room was haunted, had noticed that there was a light in there the night before. That's what I've found out, Huck. I reckon that's the very number two we're after. I reckon it is, Tom. Now what you going to do? Let me think. Tom thought a long time. Then he said. I'll tell you. The back door of that number two is the door that comes out into that little close alley between the tavern and the old rattle trap of a brick store. Now you get hold of all the dorkies you can find, and I'll nip all of Auntie's, and the first dark night we'll go there and try em. And mind you, keep a lookout for Injun Joe, because he said he was going to drop into town and spy around once more for a chance to get his revenge. If you see him, you just follow him, and if he don't go to that number two, that ain't the place. Lordy, I don't want to fuller him by myself. Why, it'll be night, sure. He mightn't ever see you, 
and if he did, maybe he'd never think anything. Well, if it's pretty dark I reckon I'll track him. I don't know, I don't know. I'll try. You bet I'll follow him, if it's dark, Huck. Why, he might a found out he couldn't get his revenge, and be going right after that money. It's so, Tom, it's so. I'll fuller him, I will, by jingos. Now you're talking. Don't you ever weaken, Huck, and I won't. Chapter 15 A few minutes later Tom was in the shoal water of the bar, waiting toward the Illinois shore. Before the depth reached his middle he was halfway over, the current would permit no more waiting, now, so he struck out confidently to swim the remaining hundred yards. He swam quartering upstream, but still was swept downward rather faster than he had expected. However, he reached the shore finally, and drifted along till he found a low place and drew himself out. He put his hand on his jacket pocket, found his piece of bark safe, and then struck through the woods, following the shore, with streaming garments. Shortly before ten o'clock he came out into an open place opposite the village, and saw the ferryboat lying in the shadow of the trees and the high bank. Everything was quiet under the blinking stars. He crept down the bank, watching with all his eyes, slipped into the water, swam three or four strokes and climbed into the skiff that did y'all duty at the boat's stern. He laid himself down under the thwarts and waited, panting. Presently the cracked bell tapped and a voice gave the order to cast off. A minute or two later the skiff's head was standing high up, against the boat's swell, and the voyage was begun. Tom felt happy in his success, for he knew it was the boat's last trip for the night. At the end of a long twelve or fifteen minutes the wheel stopped, and Tom slipped overboard and swam ashore in the dusk, landing fifty yards downstream, out of danger of possible stragglers. He flew along unfrequented alleys, and shortly found himself at his aunt's back fence. He climbed over, approached the L, and looked in at the sitting-room window, for a light was burning there. There sat Aunt Polly, Sid, Mary, and Joe Harper's mother, grouped together, talking. They were by the bed, and the bed was between them and the door. Tom went to the door and began to softly lift the latch, then he pressed gently and the door yielded a crack, he continued pushing cautiously, and quaking every time it creaked, till he judged he might squeeze through on his knees, so he put his head through and began, warily. What makes the candle blow so? said Aunt Polly. Tom hurried up. Why, that door's open, I believe. Why, of course it is. No end of strange things now. Go long and shut it, Sid. Tom disappeared under the bed just in time. He lay and breathed himself for a time, and then crept to where he could almost touch his aunt's foot. But as I was saying, said Aunt Polly, he warn't bad, so to say, only mischievous. Only just giddy and harem scarum, you know. He warn't any more responsible than a colt. He never meant any harm, and he was the best-hearted boy that ever was, and she began to cry. It was just so with my Joe, always full of his devilment, and up to every kind of mischief, but he was just as unselfish and kind as he could be, and laws bless me, to think I went and whipped him for taking the cream, never once recollecting that I throwed it out myself because it was sour, and I never to see him again in this world, never, 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 poor abused boy. And Mrs. Harper sobbed as if her heart would break. I hope Tom's better off where he is, said Sid, but if he'd been better in some ways. Sid. Tom felt the glare of the old lady's eye, though he could not see it. Not a word against my Tom, now that he's gone. God'll take care of him, never you trouble yourself, sir. Oh, Mrs. Harper, I don't know how to give him up. I don't know how to give him up. He was such a comfort to me, although he tormented my old heart out of me, most. The Lord giveth and the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But it's so hard, oh, it's so hard. Only last Saturday my Joe busted a firecracker right under my nose and I knocked him sprawling. 
Little did I know then, how soon, oh, if it was to do over again I'd hug him and bless him for it. Yes, 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 I know just how you feel, Mrs. Harper, I know just exactly how you feel. No longer ago than yesterday noon, my Tom took and filled the cat full of painkiller, and I did think the creeter would tear the house down. And God forgive me, I cracked Tom's head with my thimble, poor boy, poor dead boy. But he's out of all his troubles now. And the last words I ever heard him say was to reproach. But this memory was too much for the old lady, and she broke entirely down. Tom was snuffling, now, himself, and more in pity of himself than anybody else. He could hear Mary crying, and putting in a kindly word for him from time to time. He began to have a nobler opinion of himself than ever before. Still, he was sufficiently touched by his aunt's grief to long to rush out from under the bed and overwhelm her with joy, and a theatrical gorgeousness of the thing appealed strongly to his nature, too, but he resisted and lay still. He went on listening, and gathered by odds and ends that it was conjectured at first that the boys had got drowned while taking a swim, then the small raft had been missed, next, certain boys said the missing lads had promised that the village should hear something soon, the wise heads had put this and that together and decided that the lads had gone off on that raft and would turn up at the next town below, presently, but toward noon the raft had been found, lodged against the Missouri shore some five or six miles below the village, and then hope perished, they must be drowned, else hunger would have driven them home by nightfall if not sooner. It was believed that the search for the bodies had been a fruitless effort merely because the drowning must have occurred in mid-channel, since the boys, being good swimmers, would otherwise have escaped to shore. This was Wednesday night. If the bodies continued missing until Sunday, all hope would be given over, and the funerals would be preached on that morning. Tom shuddered. Mrs. Harper gave a sobbing good night and turned to go. Then with a mutual impulse the two bereaved women flung themselves into each other's arms and had a good, consoling cry, and then parted. Aunt Polly was tender far beyond her want, in her good night to Sid and Mary. Sid snuffled a bit and Mary went off crying with all her heart. Aunt Polly knelt down and prayed for Tom so touchingly, so appealingly, and with such measureless love in her words and her old trembling voice, that he was weltering in tears again, long before she was through. He had to keep still long after she went to bed, for she kept making broken-hearted ejaculations from time to time, tossing unrestfully, and turning over. But at last she was still, only moaning a little in her sleep. Now the boy stole out, rose gradually by the bedside, shaded the candlelight with his hand, and stood regarding her. His heart was full of pity for her. He took out his sycamore scroll and placed it by the candle. But something occurred to him, and he lingered considering. His face lighted with a happy solution of his thought, he put the bark hastily in his pocket. Then he bent over and kissed the faded lips, and straightway made his stealthy exit, latching the door behind him. He threaded his way back to the ferry landing, found nobody at large there, and walked boldly on board the boat, for he knew she was tenantless except that there was a watchman, who always turned in and slept like a graven image. He untied the skiff at the stern, slipped into it, and was soon rowing cautiously upstream. When he had pulled a mile above the village, he started quartering across and bent himself stoutly to his work. He hit the landing on the other side neatly, for this was a familiar bit of work to him. He was moved to capture the skiff, arguing that it might be considered a ship and therefore legitimate prey for a pirate, but he knew a thorough search would be made for it and that might end in revelations. So he stepped ashore and entered the woods. He sat down and took a long rest, torturing himself meanwhile to keep awake, and then started warily down the home stretch. The night was far spent. It was broad daylight before he found himself fairly abreast the island bar. He rested again until the sun was well up and gilding the great river with its splendor, and then he plunged into the stream. A little later he paused, dripping, upon the threshold of the camp, and heard Joe say, 
Note, Palm's true blue, Huck, and he'll come back. He won't desert. He knows that would be a disgrace to a pirate, and Tom's too proud for that sort of thing. He's up to something or other. Now I wonder what? Well, the things is ours, anyway, ain't they? Pretty near, but not yet, Huck. The writing says they are if he ain't back here to breakfast. Which he is, exclaimed Tom, with fine dramatic effect, stepping grandly into camp. A sumptuous breakfast of bacon and fish was shortly provided, and as the boys set to work upon it, Tom recounted, and adorned, his adventures. They were a vain and boastful company of heroes when the tale was done. Then Tom hid himself away in a shady nook to sleep till noon, and the other pirates got ready to fish and explore. Chapter 16 After dinner all the gang turned out to hunt for turtle eggs on the bar. They went about poking sticks into the sand, and when they found a soft place they went down on their knees and dug with their hands. Sometimes they would take fifty or sixty eggs out of one hole. They were perfectly round white things a trifle smaller than an English walnut. They had a famous fried egg feast that night, and another on Friday morning. After breakfast they went whooping and prancing out on the bar, and chased each other round and round, shedding clothes as they went, until they were naked, and then continued the frolic far away up the shoal water of the bar, against the stiff current, which latter tripped their legs from under them from time to time and greatly increased the fun. And now and then they stooped in a group and splashed water in each other's faces with their palms, gradually approaching each other, with averted faces to avoid the strangling sprays, and finally gripping and struggling till the best man ducked his neighbor, and then they all went under in a tangle of white legs and arms and came up blowing, sputtering, laughing, and gasping for breath at one and the same time. When they were well exhausted, they would run out and sprawl on the dry, hot sand, and lie there and cover themselves up with it, and by and by break for the water again and go through the original performance once more. Finally it occurred to them that their naked skin represented flesh-colored tights very fairly, so they drew a ring in the sand and had a circus, with three clowns in it, for none would yield this proudest post to his neighbor. Next they got their marbles and played knucks and ring-taw and keeps till that amusement grew stale. Then Joe and Huck had another swim, but Tom would not venture, because he found that in kicking off his trousers he had kicked his string of rattlesnake rattles off his ankle, and he wondered how he had escaped cramp so long without the protection of this mysterious charm. He did not venture again until he had found it, and by that time the other boys were tired and ready to rest. They gradually wandered apart, dropped into the dumps, and fell to gazing longingly across the wide river to where the village lay drowsing in the sun. Tom found himself riding Becky in the sand with his big toe, he scratched it out, and was angry with himself for his weakness. But he wrote it again, nevertheless, he could not help it. He erased it once more and then took himself out of temptation by driving the other boys together and joining them. But Joe's spirits had gone down almost beyond resurrection. He was so homesick that he could hardly endure the misery of it. The tears lay very near the surface. Huck was melancholy, too. Tom was downhearted, but tried hard not to show it. He had a secret which he was not ready to tell, yet, but if this mutinous depression was not broken up soon, he would have to bring it out. He said, with a great show of cheerfulness. I bet there's been pirates on this island before, boys. We'll explore it again. They've hid treasures here somewhere. How'd you feel to light on a rotten chest full of gold and silver, hey? But it roused only faint enthusiasm, which faded out, with no reply. Tom tried one or two other seductions, but they failed, too. It was discouraging work. Joe sat poking up the sand with a stick and looking very gloomy. Finally he said. Oh, boys, let's give it up. I want to go home. It's so lonesome. Oh no, Joe you'll feel better by and by, said Tom. Just think of the fishing that's here. I don't care for fishing. I want to go home.
But, Joe, there ain't such another swimming place anywhere. Swimming's no good. I don't seem to care for it, somehow, when there ain't anybody to say I shan't go in. I mean to go home. Oh, shucks. Baby. You want to see your mother, I reckon. Yes, I do want to see my mother, and you would, too, if you had one. I ain't any more baby than you are. And Joe snuffled a little. Well, we'll let the crybaby go home to his mother, won't we, Huck? Poor thing, does it want to see its mother? And so it shall. You like it here, don't you, Huck? We'll stay, won't we? Huck said, why yes without any heart in it. I'll never speak to you again as long as I live, said Joe, rising. There now. And he moved moodily away and began to dress himself. Who cares, said Tom. Nobody wants you to. Go long home and get laughed at. Oh, we're a nice pirate. Huck and me ain't crybabies. We'll stay, won't we, Huck? Let him go if he wants to. I reckon we can get along without him, perhaps. But Tom was uneasy, nevertheless, and was alarmed to see Joe go sullenly on with his dressing. And then it was discomforting to see Huck eyeing Joe's preparations so wistfully, and keeping up such an ominous silence. Presently, without a parting word, Joe began to wade off toward the Illinois shore. Tom's heart began to sink. He glanced at Huck. Huck could not bear the look, and dropped his eyes. Then he said. I want to go, too, Tom. It was getting so lonesome anyway, and now it'll be worse. Let's us go, too, Tom. I won't. You can all go, if you want to. I mean to stay. Tom, I better go. Well, go long, who's hindering you? Huck began to pick up his scattered clothes. He said. Tom, I wished you'd come, too. Now you think it over. We'll wait for you when we get to shore. Well, you'll wait a blame long time, that's all. Huck started sorrowfully away, and Tom stood looking after him, with a strong desire tugging at his heart to yield his pride and go along too. He hoped the boys would stop, but they still waited slowly on. It suddenly dawned on Tom that it was become very lonely and still. He made one final struggle with his pride, and then darted after his comrades, yelling. Wait. Wait. I want to tell you something. They presently stopped and turned around. When he got to where they were, he began unfolding his secret, and they listened moodily till at last they saw the point he was driving at, and then they set up a war whoop of applause and said it was splendid, and said if he had told them at first, they wouldn't have started away. He made a plausible excuse, but his real reason had been the fear that not even the secret would keep them with him any very great length of time, and so he had meant to hold it in reserve as a last seduction. The lads came gaily back and went at their sports again with a will, chattering all the time about Tom's stupendous plan and admiring the genius of it. After a dainty egg and fish dinner, Tom said he wanted to learn to smoke, now. Joe caught at the idea and said he would like to try, too. So Huck made pipes and filled them. These novices had never smoked anything before but cigars made of grapevine, and they bit the tongue, and were not considered manly anyway. Now they stretched themselves out on their elbows and began to puff, cheerily, and with slender confidence. The smoke had an unpleasant taste, and they gagged a little, but Tom said. Why, it's just as easy. If I'd a know this was all, I'd a learnt long ago. So would I, said Joe. It's just nothing. Why, many a time I've looked at people smoking, and thought well I wish I could do that, but I never thought I could, said Tom. That's just the way with me, hain't it, Huck? You've heard me talk just that way, haven't you, Huck? I'll leave it to Huck if I haven't. Yes, heaps of times, said Huck. Well, I have too, said Tom, oh, hundreds of times. Once down by the slaughterhouse. Don't you remember, Huck? 
Bob Tanner was there, and Johnny Miller, and Jeff Thatcher, when I said it. Don't you remember, Huck, about me saying that? Yes, that's so, said Huck. That was the day after I lost a white alley. No, twas the day before. There, I told you so, said Tom. Huck recollects it. I believe I could smoke this pipe all day, said Joe. I don't feel sick. Neither do I, said Tom. I could smoke it all day. But I bet you Jeff Thatcher couldn't. Jeff Thatcher. Why, he'd keel over just with two draws. Just let him try it once. He'd see. I bet he would. And Johnny Miller, I wish could see Johnny Miller tackle it once. Oh, don't I, said Joe. Why, I bet you Johnny Miller couldn't any more do this than nothing. Just one little snifter would fetch him. Deed it would, Joe. Say, I wish the boys could see us now. So do I. Say, boys, don't say anything about it, and sometime when they're around, I'll come up to you and say, Joe, got a pipe. I want to smoke. And you'll say, kind of careless-like, as if it weren't anything, you'll say, yes, I got my old pipe, and another one, but my tobacco ain't very good. And I'll say, oh, that's all right, if it's strong enough. And then you'll out with the pipes, and we'll light up just as C.A.M., and then just see him look. By jings, that'll be gay, Tom. I wish it was now. So do I. And when we tell them we learned when we was off pirating, won't they wish they'd been along? Oh, I reckon not. I'll just bet they will. So the talk ran on. But presently it began to flag a trifle, and grow disjointed. The silences widened, the expectoration marvelously increased. Every pore inside the boys' cheeks became a spouting fountain, they could scarcely bail out the cellars under their tongues fast enough to prevent an inundation, little overflowings down their throats occurred in spite of all they could do, and sudden retchings followed every time. Both boys were looking very pale and miserable, now. Joe's pipe dropped from his nerveless fingers. Tom's followed. Both fountains were going furiously and both pumps bailing with might and main. Joe said feebly. I've lost my knife. I reckon I better go and find it. Tom said, with quivering lips and halting utterance. I'll help you. You go over that way and I'll hunt around by the spring. No, you needn't come, Huck, we can find it. So Huck sat down again, and waited an hour. Then he found it lonesome, and went to find his comrades. They were wide apart in the woods, both very pale, both fast asleep. But something informed him that if they had had any trouble they had got rid of it. They were not talkative at supper that night. They had a humble look, and when Huck prepared his pipe after the meal and was going to prepare theirs, they said no, they were not feeling very well, something they ate at dinner had disagreed with them. About midnight Joe awoke, and called the boys. There was a brooding oppressiveness in the air that seemed to bode something. The boys huddled themselves together and sought the friendly companionship of the fire, though the dull dead heat of the breathless atmosphere was stifling. They sat still, intent and waiting. The solemn hush continued. Beyond the light of the fire everything was swallowed up in the blackness of darkness. Presently there came a quivering glow that vaguely revealed the foliage for a moment and then vanished. By and by another came, a little stronger. Then another. Then a faint moan came sighing through the branches of the forest and the boys felt a fleeting breath upon their cheeks, and shuddered with the fancy that the spirit of the night had gone by. There was a pause. Now a weird flash turned night into day and showed every little grass blade, separate and distinct, that grew about their feet. And it showed three white, startled faces, too. A deep peal of thunder went rolling and tumbling down the heavens and lost itself in sullen rumblings in the distance. A sweep of chilly air passed by, rustling all the leaves and snowing the flaky ashes broadcast about the fire. 
Another fierce glare lit up the forest and an instant crash followed that seemed to rend the treetops right over the boys' heads. They clung together in terror, in the thick gloom that followed. A few big raindrops fell pattering upon the leaves. Quick! Boys, go for the tent, exclaimed Tom. They sprang away, stumbling over roots and among vines in the dark, no two plunging in the same direction. A furious blast roared through the trees, making everything sing as it went. One blinding flash after another came, and peal on peal of deafening thunder. And now a drenching rain poured down and the rising hurricane drove it in sheets along the ground. The boys cried out to each other, but the roaring wind and the booming thunder blast drowned their voices utterly. However, one by one they straggled in at last and took shelter under the tent, cold, scared, and streaming with water, but to have company in misery seemed something to be grateful for. They could not talk, the old sail flapped so furiously, even if the other noises would have allowed them. The tempest rose higher and higher, and presently the sail tore loose from its fastenings and went winging away on the blast. The boys seized each other's hands and fled, with many tumblings and bruises, to the shelter of a great oak that stood upon the riverbank. Now the battle was at its highest. Under the ceaseless conflagration of lightning that flamed in the skies, everything below stood out in clean-cut and shadowless distinctness, the bending trees, the billowy river, white with foam, the driving spray of spumeflakes, the dim outlines of the high bluffs on the other side, glimpsed through the drifting cloudrack and the slanting veil of rain. Every little while some giant tree yielded the fight and fell crashing through the younger growth, and the unflagging thunder peals came now in ear-splitting explosive bursts, keen and sharp, and unspeakably appalling. The storm culminated in one matchless effort that seemed likely to tear the island to pieces, burn it up, drown it to the treetops, blow it away, and deafen every creature in it, all at one in the same moment. It was a wild night for homeless young heads to be out in. But at last the battle was done, and the forces retired with weaker and weaker threatenings and grumblings, and peace resumed her sway. The boys went back to camp, a good deal odd, but they found there was still something to be thankful for, because the great sycamore, the shelter of their beds, was a ruin, now, blasted by the lightnings, and they were not under it when the catastrophe happened. Everything in camp was drenched, the campfire as well, for they were but heedless lads, like their generation, and had made no provision against rain. Here was matter for dismay, for they were soaked through and chilled. They were eloquent in their distress, but they presently discovered that the fire had eaten so far up under the great log it had been built against, where it curbed upward and separated itself from the ground, that a handbreadth or so of it had escaped wetting, so they patiently wrought until, with shreds and bark gathered from the undersides of sheltered logs, they coaxed the fire to burn again. Then they piled on great dead boughs till they had a roaring furnace, and were glad-hearted once more. They dried their boiled ham and had a feast, and after that they sat by the fire and expanded and glorified their midnight adventure until morning, for there was not a dry spot to sleep on, anywhere around. As the sun began to steal in upon the boys, drowsiness came over them, and they went out on the sandbar and lay down to sleep. They got scorched out by and by, and drearily set about getting breakfast. After the meal they felt rusty, and stiff jointed, and a little homesick once more. Tom saw the signs, and fell to cheering up the pirates as well as he could. But they cared nothing for marbles, or circus, or swimming, or anything. He reminded them of the imposing secret, and raised a ray of cheer. While it lasted, he got them interested in a new device. This was to knock off being pirates, for a while, and be Indians for a change. They were attracted by this idea, so it was not long before they were stripped, and striped from head to heel with black mud, like so many zebras, all of them chiefs, of course, and then they went tearing through the woods to attack an English settlement. By and by they separated into three hostile tribes, and darted upon each other from ambush with dreadful war-whoops, and killed and scalped each other by thousands. It was a gory day. 
consequently it was an extremely satisfactory one. They assembled in camp toward supper time, hungry and happy, but now a difficulty arose, hostile Indians could not break the bread of hospitality together without first making peace, and this was a simple impossibility without smoking a pipe of peace. There was no other process that ever they had heard of. Two of the savages almost wished they had remained pirates. However, there was no other way, so with such show of cheerfulness as they could muster they called for the pipe and took their whiff as it passed, in due form. And behold, they were glad they had gone into savagery, for they had gained something, they found that they could now smoke a little without having to go and hunt for a lost knife, they did not get sick enough to be seriously uncomfortable. They were not likely to fool away this high promise for lack of effort. No, they practiced cautiously, after supper, with right fair success, and so they spent a jubilant evening. They were prouder and happier in their new acquirement than they would have been in the scalping and skinning of the Six Nations. We will leave them to smoke and chatter and brag, since we have no further use for them at present. Chapter 28 That night Tom and Huck were ready for their adventure. They hung about the neighborhood of the tavern until after nine, one watching the alley at a distance and the other the tavern door. Nobody entered the alley or left it, nobody resembling the Spaniard entered or left the tavern door. The night promised to be a fair one, so Tom went home with the understanding that if a considerable degree of darkness came on, Huck was to come and mow, whereupon he would slip out and try the keys. But the night remained clear, and Huck closed his watch and retired to bed in an empty sugar hogshead about twelve. Tuesday the boys had the same ill luck. Also Wednesday. But Thursday night promised better. Tom slipped out in good season with his aunt's old tin lantern, and a large towel to blindfold it with. He hid the lantern in Huck's sugar hogshead and the watch began. An hour before midnight the tavern closed up and its lights, the only ones thereabouts, were put out. No Spaniard had been seen. Nobody had entered or left the alley. Everything was auspicious. The blackness of darkness reigned, the perfect stillness was interrupted only by occasional mutterings of distant thunder. Tom got his lantern, lit it in the hogshead, wrapped it closely in the towel, and the two adventurers crept in the gloom toward the tavern. Huck stood sentry and Tom felt his way into the alley. Then there was a season of waiting anxiety that weighed upon Huck's spirits like a mountain. He began to wish he could see a flash from the lantern, it would frighten him, but it would at least tell him that Tom was alive yet. It seemed hours since Tom had disappeared. Surely he must have fainted, maybe he was dead, maybe his heart had burst under terror and excitement. In his uneasiness Huck found himself drawing closer and closer to the alley, fearing all sorts of dreadful things, and momentarily expecting some catastrophe to happen that would take away his breath. There was not much to take away, for he seemed only able to inhale it by thimblefuls, and his heart would soon wear itself out, the way it was beating. Suddenly there was a flash of light and Tom came tearing by him, run, said he, run, for your life. He needn't have repeated it, once was enough, Huck was making thirty or forty miles an hour before the repetition was uttered. The boys never stopped till they reached the shed of a deserted slaughterhouse at the lower end of the village. Just as they got within its shelter the storm burst and the rain poured down. As soon as Tom got his breath he said. Huck, it was awful. I tried two of the keys, just as soft as I could but they seemed to make such a power of racket that I couldn't hardly get my breath I was so scared. They wouldn't turn in the lock, either. Well, without noticing what I was doing, I took hold of the knob and open comes the door. It weren't locked. I hopped in, and shook off the towel, and, great Caesar's ghost. What? Why did you see, Tom? Huck, I most stepped onto Injun Joe's hand. No. Yes. He was lying there, sound asleep on the floor, with his old patch on his eye and his arms spread out. Lordy, what did you do? Did he wake up? No, never budged. 
Drunk, I reckon. I just grabbed that towel and started. I'd never a thought of the towel, I bet. Well, I would. My aunt would make me mighty sick if I lost it. Say, Tom, did you see that box? Huck, I didn't wait to look around. I didn't see the box, I didn't see the cross. I didn't see anything but a bottle and a tin cup on the floor by Engine Joe, yes, I saw two barrels and lots more bottles in the room. Don't you see, now, what's the matter with that haunted room? How? Why, it's haunted with whiskey. Maybe all the temperance taverns have got a haunted room, hey, Huck. Well, I reckon maybe that's so. Who'd a thought such a thing? But say, Tom, now's a mighty good time to get that box, if Injun Joe's drunk. It is, that. You try it. Huck shuddered. Well, no, I reckon not. And I reckon not, Huck. Only one bottle alongside of Injun Joe ain't enough. If there'd been three, he'd be drunk enough and I'd do it. There was a long pause for reflection, and then Tom said. Look I hear, Huck, let's not try that thing anymore till we know Injun Joe's not in there. It's too scary. Now, if we watch every night, we'll be dead sure to see him go out, sometime or other, and then we'll snatch that box quicker and lightning. Well, I'm agreed. I'll watch the whole night long, and I'll do it every night, too, if you'll do the other part of the job. All right, I will. All you got to do is to trot up Hooper Street a block and Mao, and if I'm asleep, you throw some gravel at the window and that'll fetch me. Agreed, and good as we. Now, Huck, the storm's over, and I'll go home. It'll begin to be daylight in a couple of hours. You go back and watch that long, will you? I said I would, Tom, and I will. I'll hand that tavern every night for a year. I'll sleep all day and I'll stay and watch all night. That's all right. Now, were you going to sleep? In Ben Rogers' hayloft. He lets me, and so does his paps nigger man, Uncle Jake. I tote water for Uncle Jake whenever he wants me to, and any time I ask him he gives me a little something to eat if he can spare it. That's a mighty good nigger, Tom. He likes me, because I don't ever act as if I was above him. Sometime I've sat right down and eat with him. But you needn't tell that. A body's got to do things when he's awful hungry he wouldn't want to do as a steady thing. Well, if I don't want you in the daytime, I'll let you sleep. I won't come bothering around. Anytime you see something's up, in the night, just skip right around and mow. Chapter 29 The first thing Tom heard on Friday morning was a glad piece of news, Judge Thatcher's family had come back to town the night before. Both Injun Joe and the treasure sunk into secondary importance for a moment, and Becky took the chief place in the boy's interest. He saw her and they had an exhausting good time playing Hispy and Billy Keeper with a crowd of their schoolmates. The day was completed and crowned in a peculiarly satisfactory way, Becky teased her mother to appoint the next day for the long-promised and long-delayed picnic, and she consented. The child's delight was boundless, and Tom's not more moderate. The invitations were sent out before sunset, and straightway the young folks of the village were thrown into a fever of preparation and pleasurable anticipation. Tom's excitement enabled him to keep awake until a pretty late hour, and he had good hopes of hearing Huck's mow, and of having his treasure to astonish Becky and the picnickers with, next day, but he was disappointed. No signal came that night. Morning came, eventually, and by ten or eleven o'clock a giddy and rollicking company were gathered at Judge Thatcher's, and everything was ready for a start. It was not the custom for elderly people to mar the picnics with their presence. The children were considered safe enough under the wings of a few young ladies of eighteen and a few young gentlemen of twenty-three or thereabouts. The old steam ferryboat was chartered for the occasion, presently the gay throng filed up the main street laden with provision baskets. Sid was sick and had to miss the fun, Mary remained at home to entertain him. 
the last thing Mrs. Thatcher said to Becky, was. You'll not get back till late. Perhaps you'd better stay all night with some of the girls that live near the ferry landing, child. Then I'll stay with Susie Harper, Mama. Very well. And mind and behave yourself and don't be any trouble. Presently, as they tripped along, Tom said to Becky. Say, I'll tell you what we'll do. Instead of going to Joe Harper's we'll climb right up the hill and stop at the Widow Douglas. She'll have ice cream. She has it most every day, dead loads of it. And she'll be awful glad to have us. Oh, that will be fun. Then Becky reflected a moment and said. But what will Mama say? How'll she ever know? The girl turned the idea over in her mind, and said reluctantly. I reckon it's wrong, but. But shucks. Your mother won't know, and so what's the harm? All she wants is that you'll be safe, and I bet you she'd a said go there if she'd a thought of it. I know she would. The widow Douglas' splendid hospitality was a tempting bait. It and Tom's persuasions presently carried the day. So it was decided to say nothing to anybody about the night's program. Presently it occurred to Tom that maybe Huck might come this very night and give the signal. The thought took a deal of the spirit out of his anticipations. Still he could not bear to give up the fun at Widow Douglas. And why should he give it up, he reasoned, the signal did not come the night before, so why should it be any more likely to come tonight? The sure fun of the evening outweighed the uncertain treasure, and, boy-like, he determined to yield to the stronger inclination and not allow himself to think of the box of money another time that day. Three miles below town the ferryboat stopped at the mouth of a woody hollow and tied up. The crowd swarmed ashore and soon the forest distances and craggy heights echoed far and near with shoutings and laughter. All the different ways of getting hot and tired were gone through with, and by and by the rovers straggled back to camp fortified with responsible appetites, and then the destruction of the good things began. After the feast there was a refreshing season of rest and chat in the shade of spreading oaks. By and by somebody shouted. Who's ready for the cave? Everybody was. Bundles of candles were procured, and straightway there was a general scamper up the hill. The mouth of the cave was up the hillside, an opening shaped like a letter A its massive oaken door stood unbarred. Within was a small chamber, chilly as an ice house, and walled by nature with solid limestone that was dewy with a cold sweat. It was romantic and mysterious to stand here in the deep gloom and look out upon the green valley shining in the sun. But the impressiveness of the situation quickly wore off, and the romping began again. The moment a candle was lighted there was a general rush upon the owner of it, a struggle and a gallant defence followed, but the candle was soon knocked down or blown out, and then there was a glad clamour of laughter and a new chase. But all things have an end. By and by the procession went filing down the steep descent of the main avenue, the flickering rank of lights dimly revealing the lofty walls of rock almost to their point of junction sixty feet overhead. This main avenue was not more than eight or ten feet wide. Every few steps other lofty and still narrower crevices branched from it on either hand, for MacDougall's cave was but a vast labyrinth of crooked aisles that ran into each other and out again and led nowhere. It was said that one might wander days and nights together through its intricate tangle of rifts and chasms, and never find the end of the cave, and that he might go down, and down, and still down, into the earth, and it was just the same, labyrinth under labyrinth, and no end to any of them. No man knew the cave. That was an impossible thing. Most of the young men knew a portion of it, and it was not customary to venture much beyond this known portion. Tom Sawyer knew as much of the cave as any one. The procession moved along the main avenue some three-quarters of a mile, and then groups and couples began to slip aside into branch avenues, fly along the dismal corridors, and take each other by surprise at points where the corridors joined again. Parties were able to elude each other for the space of half an hour without going beyond the known ground. By and by, 
one group after another came straggling back to the mouth of the cave, panting, hilarious, smeared from head to foot with tallow drippings, daubed with clay, and entirely delighted with the success of the day. Then they were astonished to find that they had been taking no note of time and that night was about at hand. The clanging bell had been calling for half an hour. However, this sort of close to the day's adventures was romantic and therefore satisfactory. When the ferry boat with her wild freight pushed into the stream, nobody cared sixpence for the wasted time but the captain of the craft. Huck was already upon his watch when the ferryboat's lights went glinting past the wharf. He heard no noise on board, for the young people were as subdued and still as people usually are who are nearly tired to death. He wondered what boat it was, and why she did not stop at the wharf, and then he dropped her out of his mind and put his attention upon his business. The night was growing cloudy and dark. Ten o'clock came, and the noise of vehicles ceased, scattered lights began to wink out, all straggling foot passengers disappeared. The village betook itself to its slumbers and left the small watcher alone with the silence and the ghosts. Eleven o'clock came, and the tavern lights were put out, darkness everywhere, now. Huck waited what seemed a weary long time, but nothing happened. His faith was weakening. Was there any use? Was there really any use? Why not give it up and turn in? A noise fell upon his ear. He was all attention in an instant. The alley door closed softly. He sprang to the corner of the brick store. The next moment two men brushed by him and one seemed to have something under his arm. It must be that box. So they were going to remove the treasure. Why call Tom now? It would be absurd, the men would get away with the box and never be found again. No, he would stick to their wake and follow them, he would trust to the darkness for security from discovery. So communing with himself, Huck stepped out and glided along behind the men, cat-like, with bare feet, allowing them to keep just far enough ahead not to be invisible. They moved up the river street three blocks, then turned to the left up a cross street. They went straight ahead, then, until they came to the path that led up Cardiff Hill, this they took. They passed by the old Welshman's house, halfway up the hill, without hesitating, and still climbed upward. Good, thought Huck, they will bury it in the old quarry. But they never stopped at the quarry. They passed on, up the summit. They plunged into the narrow path between the tall sumac bushes, and were at once hidden in the gloom. Huck closed up and shortened his distance, now, for they would never be able to see him. He trotted along a while, then slackened his pace, fearing he was gaining too fast, moved on a piece, then stopped altogether, listened, no sound, none, save that he seemed to hear the beating of his own heart. The hooting of an owl came over the hill, ominous sound. But no footsteps. Heavens, was everything lost? He was about to spring with winged feet, when a man cleared his throat not four feet from him. Huck's heart shot into his throat, but he swallowed it again, and then he stood there shaking as if a dozen agues had taken charge of him at once, and so weak that he thought he must surely fall to the ground. He knew where he was. He knew he was within five steps of the stile leading into Widow Douglas' grounds. Very well, he thought, let them bury it there, it won't be hard to find. Now there was a voice, a very low voice, Injun Joe's. Damn her, maybe she's got company, there's lights, late as it is. I can't see any. This was that stranger's voice, the stranger of the haunted house. A deadly chill went to Huck's heart, this, then, was the revenge job. His thought was, to fly. Then he remembered that the widow Douglas had been kind to him more than once, and maybe these men were going to murder her. He wished he dared venture to warn her, but he knew he didn't dare, they might come and catch him. He thought all this and more in the moment that elapsed between the stranger's remark and Injun Joe's next, which was, because the bush is in your way. Now, this way, now you see, don't you? Yes. Well, there is company there, I reckon. Better give it up. 
Give it up, and I just leaving this country forever. Give it up and maybe never have another chance. I tell you again, as I've told you before, I don't care for her swag, you may have it. But her husband was rough on me, many times he was rough on me, and mainly he was the justice of the peace that jugged me for a vagrant. And that ain't all. It ain't a millionth part of it. He had me horsewhipped. Horsewhipped in front of the jail, like a nigger. With all the town looking on. Horsewhipped. Do you understand? He took advantage of me and died. But I'll take it out of her. Oh, don't kill her. Don't do that. Kill? Who said anything about killing? I would kill him if he was here, but not her. When you want to get revenge on a woman you don't kill her, bosh. You go for her looks. You slit her nostrils, you notch her ears like a sow. By God, that's. Keep your opinion to yourself. It will be safest for you. I'll tie her to the bed. If she bleeds to death, is that my fault? I'll not cry, if she does. My friend, you'll help me in this thing, for my sake, that's why you're here, I mightn't be able alone. If you flinch, I'll kill you. Do you understand that? And if I have to kill you, I'll kill her, and then I reckon nobody'll ever know much about who done this business. Well, if it's got to be done, let's get at it. The quicker the better, I'm all in a shiver. Do it now? And company there? Look here, I'll get suspicious of you, first thing you know. No, we'll wait till the lights are out, there's no hurry. Huck felt that a silence was going to ensue, a thing still more awful than any amount of murderous talk, so he held his breath and stepped gingerly back, planted his foot carefully and firmly, after balancing, one-legged, in a precarious way and almost toppling over, first on one side and then on the other. He took another step back, with the same elaboration and the same risks, then another and another, and, a twig snapped under his foot. His breath stopped and he listened. There was no sound, the stillness was perfect. His gratitude was measureless. Now he turned in his tracks, between the walls of sumac bushes, turned himself as carefully as if he were a ship, and then stepped quickly but cautiously along. When he emerged at the quarry he felt secure, and so he picked up his nimble heels and flew. Down, down he sped till he reached the Welshman's. He banged at the door, and presently the heads of the old man and his two stalwart sons were thrust from windows. What's the row there? Who's banging? What do you want? Let me in quick. I'll tell everything. Why, who are you? Huckleberry Finn, quick, let me in. Huckleberry Finn, indeed. It ain't a name to open many doors, I judge. But let him in, lads, and let's see what's the trouble. Please don't ever tell I told you, were Huck's first words when he got in. Please don't, I'd be killed, sure, but the widow's been good friends to me sometimes, and I want to tell, I will tell if you'll promise you won't ever say it was me. By George, he has got something to tell, or he wouldn't act so, exclaimed the old man, out with it and nobody here'll ever tell, lad. Three minutes later the old man and his sons, well armed, were up the hill, and just entering the sumac path on tiptoe, their weapons in their hands. Hawk accompanied them no further. He hid behind a great boulder and fell to listening. There was a lagging, anxious silence, and then all of a sudden there was an explosion of firearms and a cry. Huck waited for no particulars. He sprang away and sped down the hill as fast as his legs could carry him. Listening.